0: Wake up, it's the Saturday Morning Podcast. Let mom and dad sleep in and come back with me to the 80s. Let's grab a bowl of Mr. T or Yummy Mummy cereal and flip on the tube. I've got the TV guide and hours of nothing to do. My name is Chris and I love all the Saturday Morning cartoons. When I was a kid, I lived for Saturday Mornings. Now that I'm an adult-ish, I want to relive all those great shows and see how they came about. Let's take a deep dive back to the 80s and see what's waiting. Rewind! Dashing and daring, courageous and Okay, so here's the story. A much-beloved bear gets brought into the 1980s to go to the movies and other 80s things. The trick is to keep him the same, but bring him into the me-decade. I mean, they don't put him in a red and black thriller jacket or give him a mohawk, but they should have, it would have been totally rad. Here now is the story of how this honey-fueled show came to Saturday morning in which we are introduced to Winnie the Pooh and the colorful characters of the Hundred Acre Wood and the story begins. Was the real Christopher Robin delighted by his father's literary work? Where did the Pooh Bear come from? How much money has this bear taken in? All these questions and more will be answered in this look at The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Roll it!
1: Gotta get up get going. I'm gonna see a friend of mine. He's round and he's fuzzy. I love him because he's just Boo Bear the Fool.
0: In the fall of 1988, someone at Network ABC said, Please God, help us get out of third place! And so it was that a divine mouse arrived and served up a 60-year-old bear with a side of Tigger. In the late 1980s, there was a wave of nostalgia sweeping through the entertainment industry as aging executives looked backwards to find their future. That is, certain intellectual properties were celebrating anniversaries and it was a good time to create a show to celebrate. And also to fill commercial airtime. Raggedy Ann and Andy were turning 70, Superman was about to be the big 5-0, and Beanie and Cecil were nearing 40. Not to mention Scooby-Doo was almost 20, the Muppets were 20, the Smurfs and the Chipmunks were almost 30, Mighty Mouse was 50, and people were too polite to ask Bugs Bunny how old he was. All of these properties were aging, and the networks wanted to cash in. What better way than to commission a Saturday morning show to introduce a new generation to popular characters of the Great Depression? Enter Winnie the Pooh, who predated all but Raggedy Ann and Andy. In the past 20 years, a series of shorts and TV shows from Disney had made that silly old bear relevant to a new generation of tykes in the 70s and 80s. Now that the 90s were around the corner, it was the perfect time to reintroduce Pooh Bear to toddlers who had never heard of him. And Network ABC was throwing up prayer hands, hoping it would get them out of last place when it came to the weekend ratings. If you tuned in that year, the morning started at 8 o'clock with the new adventures of Beanie and Cecil kicking off the fun. It was also the lead-in for an hour of the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh, followed by an hour of Slimer and the Real Ghostbusters. That was the year that no one had a short title. 1030 brought the crime-solving antics of A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, and then an hour of The Bugs Bunny and Tweety Show. Animal Crackups aired at noon, with the ABC Weekend Special up at noon 30. Beanie and Cecil led the way for Pooh Bear, both trying to show artifacts of the past to a new generation. If you look at ABC's placement of Winnie the Pooh, the first half was up against Superman on CBS and the Gummy Bears on NBC. Superman seemed like the odds-on favorite to dominate the ratings. But the Gummy Bears were in their fourth season, making it an obviously strong show. If you weren't pulling in the numbers, you got washed out to sea. Reaching a fourth season on Saturday morning meant you had the moxie to stick around, and like most others, you weren't a one and done. Now, I question the decision to air Winnie the Pooh against the Gummy Bears. I questioned the same scheduling mistake in 1985 when the Wuzzles and the Gummy Bears were squaring off on different networks, but both were birthed by Disney. Why would you allow two of your shows to compete with each other? When the Wuzzles didn't come back for their sophomore year, it looked like the Gummy Bears won the ratings battle. And I personally believe that to be the case. The official story is that Disney didn't want to go on with the wuzzles after voice actor Bill Scott suddenly passed away, but I feel that was an excuse. The character could have been recast or removed entirely, but the studio chose to close shop. I believe that's an indication of low ratings and Bill Scott was used as a front. Fast forward to 1988 when two rival networks, both wanting to be number one, gave us Disney Civil War Part 2. History was either repeating, or Disney knew the Gummy Bears were on their way out. Personally, I understand the placement of Winnie the Pooh, but I hate that it was a half hour of Disney vs. Disney. Now that next half hour, that was the key as to why Pooh was where he was. The last 30 minutes were up against Muppet Babies on CBS and the Smurfs on NBC. Yes, the Giants. The forces that could not be taken down. Those were the two shows that were keeping ABC in third place. Those same shows were both on for an hour in the 9 a.m. time slot. Everything that came against them pretty much died. Let's now have a moment to remember ABC's fallen heroes. They fought hard, but not hard enough. Mighty Orbots Star Wars Droids My Pet Monster Little Clowns of Happy Town. Little wizards. This one goes out to all of my fallen homies. Woo! The Smurfs and Muppet Babies should be rounded up and charged with murder! If that combination didn't kill a show, the opposition definitely ran for cover if they wanted to live. That's why Star Wars Ewoks, the real Ghostbusters, and the Flintstone Kids all moved around the schedule trying to escape the shadow those two shows cast. If Winnie the Pooh wanted to see a second season in the same time slot, that silly old bear would have to work out like Rambo to do all the heavy lifting. That aside, the world of the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh took place in the Hundred Acre Wood as well as the real American world of Christopher Robin. Pooh is a stuffed animal, as are his friends, that young Christopher imagines as being alive. The bear is lovable but naïve and, as he puts it, a very little brain. Tigger is a tiger that is full of boundless energy but is sometimes mischievous. Piglet is Pooh's best friend but is as shy as he is kind-hearted. Rabbit is sarcastic and practical but eventually becomes something of a control freak. Gopher is a workaholic and obsessed with dynamite. Eeyore is a sad-sack donkey but capable of great compassion towards his friends. Owl is the oldest in the woods and acts as a mentor to the others. Kinga is a kind-hearted and calm mother Her young Joey, Rue, is the smallest of all the characters and usually seen hanging out with Tigger. It took 106 years to bring the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh to Saturday morning. The charming story starts back on January 18, 1882 with the birth of Alan Alexander Milne. His father, John, was a Jamaican-born immigrant who took up residence in Sussex, England. The elder Milne ran Henley House, an independent school that boasted writer H.G. Wells as one of its teachers. Alan Alexander, A.A. as he was known, attended Henley House and then went on to achieve his degree in mathematics from Trinity College. While still in school, Milne wrote for the student magazine, Granta. He often collaborated with his brother, Kenneth, and the duo wrote under the initials AKM. Milne's writing came to the attention of Punch, a humor magazine, where he became a contributor and assistant editor. While writing was a passion, so too was playing cricket. Milne was a talented fielder and played on two amateur teams. His teammates included writers like Arthur Conan Doyle, P.G. Woodhouse, and J.M. Barrie. During World War I, Milne joined the British Army and served in the Royal Wickshire Regiment. In 1915, he rose to the rank of second lieutenant. The next year, he caught trench fever and was taken back to England, where he served as a signal instructor. By 1917, he was putting his writing talent to work, writing war propaganda for the UK. In February 1920, Milne retired from the military with the rank of full lieutenant. Six months later, Milne became a father when his son Christopher Robin was born. To make ends meet, Milne wrote the novel The Red House Mystery and then authored a book of poems when we were very young in 1924. For the Book of Poetry, Milne partnered with punch illustrator E.H. Shepard. Back in 1921, Milne had bought his son a stuffed bear from Harrod's department store. Young Christopher Robin loved the bear and his other stuffed animals. Originally, Christopher Milne had named the bear Edward but changed it to Winnie after seeing a black bear at the London Zoo. On Christmas Eve 1925, the London Evening News published the story The Wrong Sort of Bees featuring Winnie the Pooh. The next year saw the release of the book Winnie the Pooh with The House at Pooh Corner arriving two years later. The books were illustrated by Milne collaborator Shepard, which still remain in reprints of the Pooh books. The books were widely successful, but Milne felt he was being pigeonholed as a writer for children. He turned to writing mysteries and stage plays. In later years, Milne and his wife became estranged from their son Christopher. The younger Milne grew up to be angry that his father capitalized on his childhood to achieve fame. Almost two weeks after his 74th birthday, A.A. A. Milne passed away in his home at Hartfield, Sussex. The right to the Winnie the Pooh books were divided among four recipients, Milne's wife, the Royal Literary Fund, Westminster School, and the Garrett Club. Not long after Milne's death, his widow sold her rights to Winnie the Pooh to Stephen Schlesinger, dubbed the father of licensing. Schlesinger was famous for acquiring rights to books, comics, and characters, and using them for movies and merchandise. Upon his death, his widow sold the Winnie the Pooh rights to the Walt Disney Company. When Disney bought the rights in 1961, they immediately started to adapt the character for the big screen. While it took five years between development and release, fans were treated to the short Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree in 1966. For Disney, this was the fulfillment of a nearly 30-year dream. As far back as 1938, Walt Disney had been trying to acquire the rights to Pooh Bear. His daughter, Diane, was an avid reader and the stories brought her delight. Seeking to make a Pooh movie on the heels of his success with Snow White, he pursued the rights. While they were not available at the time, Disney never gave up. In 1977, Disney released the feature-length film The Mini Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, which featured three previous shorts and connecting material to tell a larger story. Six years later, the House of Mouse released a live-action series called Welcome to Pooh Corner which ran on the Disney Channel. In 1985, Disney created a television department for the express purpose of creating afternoon and Saturday morning material. They started with the Wuzzles and the Gummy Bears but saw the mix-em-up adventures of the Wuzzles end after one season. Looking for a show to compliment the Gummy Bears, Disney turned their attention to Pooh Bear. Now as far back as 1957, there had been an attempt to bring the Milne creation to TV. Jay Ward, famous for Rocky and Bullwinkle, was approached by NBC to create an animated series. While parts of the show were completed and bits of dialogue were recorded, the show was ultimately abandoned. While it never happened, one has to wonder what the manic energy of Jay Ward would have done with Winnie the Pooh. Gary Crystal, the vice president of Disney's Television Animation said, quote, "I think Winnie the Pooh is a great character for Saturday morning animation." End quote. That was all it took to get the ball rolling on the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Mark Zaslav, fresh off pinning the pilot for DuckTales, was given the task to develop a Pooh series bible. The document would detail the characters used on the show, provide sample storylines and inform writers of the expectations of the series. The Bible was written over Memorial Day weekend in 1987, pitched The Next Day and Greenlit. The powers that be at Disney went directly to network ABC to pitch the idea. The series was a no-brainer for ABC, who were desperately looking for a Disney series to compete in the ratings. The Alphabet Network was in last place for Saturday morning ratings. No surprise, as they had spent six seasons competing with NBC's The Smurfs and half a decade trying to go up against Muppet Babies on CBS. Muppet Babies and The Smurfs were in a cartoon war to dominate Saturday morning and the battles were neck and neck. ABC might have been relieved to get an offer from Disney as The Wuzzles went to CBS and The Gummy Bears aired on NBC. No Disney love for ABC, but that was now changing. ABC jumped at the chance to air a Disney show in hopes of getting out of third place. Disney made it clear that the Disney Channel would have first-run rights for The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, and a deal was made. ABC was so eager to jump into the Pooh pool that they ordered an astounding 25 half-hours instead of the usual 13. A press conference was held in November of 1987 to announce the series. This was big news after all. It was the first time a classic Disney character would appear on Saturday morning. The announcement was met with skepticism and outrage. Fans decried that Saturday morning animation was low rent and would ruin the character. Fans were worried that the character of Winnie the Pooh would be modernized and lose the charm he had been known for since the 1920s. Overall, the general consensus was that Disney would not be able to top their own efforts when it came to the Milne creation. The thing about Disney television animation at this time is that the unit was small. There were only 80 people working on two Saturday morning shows, and they were stretched thin. Disney expected the same animation quality their movies were known for to appear on Saturday morning. Those working directly on the shows wanted the storytelling to be, quote, rich in language and values, as well as delightful, well-acted characters, end quote. They weren't aiming this show at kids of a certain age, but kids of all ages. Writer Zaslav became the series' story editor, offering oversight on all the stories generated. The crew became dyed-in-the-wool fans of A.A. Milne and writers constantly checked their work against the published tomes that had been cherished for six decades. It was a lot to live up to, but the Disney creatives wanted to be as accurate as possible. Supervising director Ken Kiesel said, quote, We've been well-trained in being really careful about how the characters are being handled and a lot of effort goes into the writing. Just to guarantee that it's true to the original sense of Milne. Since he was writing for a different era, compromises have to be made, and we've always been very concerned about that, end quote. Indeed, there had to be some level of modernization, or the show would be viewed as being too archaic or old-fashioned. In the spirit of elevating weekend animation, an average episode of Winnie the Pooh generated around 20,000 animation cells, where the typical program used around 8 to 12,000 per episode. That would mean more dynamic character movement akin to Disney's big screen outings. When it came to casting, there was an attempt to use all the original voice actors from the original shorts. Sterling Holloway, the originating voice of Winnie the Pooh, was called to audition. It was found that he had aged out of the role and could no longer sound like Pooh. Looking for a new silly bear, it was rumored that Burgess Meredith and E.G. Marshall tried out for Pooh. But those veteran actors weren't the right fit. Disney would have to keep looking if they wanted to assemble the Poofic cast. James Jonah Cummings, gem to his friends, was born November 3, 1952 in Youngstown, Ohio. After graduating from school, Cummings relocated to New Orleans to paint and design Mardi Gras floats and work as a riverboat deckhand. During that time, he sang and played drums in the local band, Fusion. After getting married in the early 80s, Cummings and his family moved to Los Angeles. While he moved there to be closer to acting opportunities, he managed a video store to make ends meet. In 1985, he landed the role of Lionel the Lion on Disney's Dumbo Circus. He started his career with Disney and, as we'll see, he would continue with this association for decades. Through the late 80s, Cummings would find work on The Flintstone Kids, The Transformers, and Foo-Fur. For Disney, he voiced characters on DuckTales, The Gummy Bears, Chevendale's Rescue Rangers, and The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. He was a one-man Disney afternoon. He became the official voice of Pooh Bear, a role he continues with to this day. When actor Paul Winchell was away from the studio, Cummings also pulled double duty as Tigger. Before the end of the series, Cummings became the official voice of The Bouncy One. Timothy Hoskins, Tim to his friends, started his career with the 1986 movie Stewardess School. After a guest appearance on Highway to Heaven, Hoskins landed the role of Christopher Robin on The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. While in the Hundred Acre Wood, Hoskins also provided additional voices on the feature film Uncle Buck and guest starred on Chippendale Rescue Rangers. After Winnie the Pooh went off the air, the remainder of Hoskins' career was spent playing Christopher Robin. In 1999, his resume ends. I can theorize the actor dropped out to go back to school or possibly to assume a new career. Wherever he is, we wish him well. Paul Winchell was born Paul Wilczynski on December 21, 1922, in New York City. His father, Solomon, was a tailor, and his parents had come from Russia and Poland. At a young age, young Paul had one ambition, to be a doctor. Unfortunately, the depression wiped out family finances, as well as the opportunity to attend medical school. Perhaps his drive to become a doctor came when he was 13 and battled polio. While bedridden, his life took a different direction. He chanced upon a magazine selling a ventriloquism kit for a dime. With dimes out of reach at this time, the inventive Winchell had an idea. He reached out to his art teacher, Gerald Magan, and asked if he could receive extra credit for creating his own talking doll. The teacher agreed. Young Paul fashioned a doll he named Jerry Mahoney, named for the inspirational teacher. Winchell's attention turned to comedy radio, and he started to put together comedy routines with Jerry Mahoney. In 1938, Winchell took first place on the radio talent show Major Bowes Amateur Hour. Part of the prize was to travel with Major Bowes and perform his act. While on tour, he was spotted by Ted Weems, a well-known band leader of that time. Weems reached out to Winchell and asked if he'd tour with him. The youth accepted and became an entertainment professional at the age of 14. In 1943, Winchell and Mahoney were given a radio show. Unfortunately, their show is overshadowed by Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, who won the ratings for their station. In 1950, NBC aired the children's series The Paul Winchell-Jerry Mahoney Show, a Saturday morning series sponsored by Tootsie Roll. Through the 50s and 60s, Winchell would appear on television as a host and guest star. At the end of the 1960s, he would hook up with Hanna-Barbera Studios and start a voice career. The powers that be at HB found plenty of work for Winchell. He would voice Dick Dastardly on several cartoons including Wacky Races and Dastardly and Muttley in their Flying Machines. He became a staple at Hanna-Barbera and also worked for Ruby Spears. Along the way, Winchell would marry three times and have three children. In 1981, he was cast as title character Marmaduke. At the same time, he was also over at Hanna-Barbera harassing the Smurfs as Nemesis Gargamel. At the end of the me-decade, Winchell helped Disney transition to the small screen by reprising his role as Tigger. Due to a heart condition, he was allowed to record his lines alone, away from his other cast members. Technology eventually allowed Winchell to live in Florida and still record his lines for the series. John Donald Fielder was born February 23, 1925, in Platteville, Wisconsin. His father, Donald, was a beer salesman. His mother, Margaret, was a domestic engineer. From a very young age, Fielder knew he wanted to be an actor. In his youth, he sported a full head of red hair, a direct tie-in to his Irish ancestry. Graduating from Shorewood High School in 1943, Fielder joined the Navy and served until the end of World War II. Living in Manhattan after the war, Johnny Fielder found work on The Aldrich Family, a radio comedy. He had quite the voice for radio, able to create a memorable tone and use it for both comedic and dramatic characters. During the 50s, Fielder took on guest roles in the new medium of television. He appeared on Tom Corbett Space Cadet for five years as Alfie Higgins. Two years after Corbett, two years after Corbett, Fielder transitioned to the big screen, making his movie debut in 12 Angry Men. From there, he appeared in movies and TV shows, often uncredited. But his bald pate and raspy voice were unmistakable and Fielder was immediately recognizable. In the 1960s, he guest starred on the many loves of Dobie Gillis, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and others. To this day, science fiction fans may best remember Fielder as Hingis from the second season episode, Woof in the Fold of the original Star Trek series. 1968 would mark the first appearance of the film short, Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day in which Fielder voiced Piglet. It started a professional partnership with Walt Disney Productions that lasted for decades. In the 70s, Fielder voiced Father Sexton in Robin Hood and reprised his role as Piglet when called upon. During this time, he appeared in the play, the movie, and the series of The Odd Couple though he would play different characters in each incarnation. In the mid-70s, he played the recurring character of Gordy the Ghoul Spangler on Kolchak the Night Stalker. Not long after, Fielder returned to Disney in 1977's The Rescuers and in the 1981 film The Fox and the Hound. He also appeared in the 1983 movie titled, Get This, I Am the Cheese. At the end of the decade, Fielder was called upon to reprise the role of Piglet on The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Ken Sansom was born April 2, 1927 in Salt Lake City, Utah. After graduating from East High School in 1944, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy to fight World War II. After the war, Sansom enrolled in the University of Utah but would transfer to Brigham Young University. At BYU, he attained his bachelor's in radio broadcasting in 1949. The practicing Mormon pursued a career in radio, starring in the Los Angeles-based show, Sansum and Thensum. During the Korean War, he was called back into service by the Navy. Sansom would start his voice career in the 1970 movie Shinbone Alley. On TV, he played Clarence on Mayberry RFD and found himself guest starring on Julia and Room 222, among others. In 1977, he provided additional voices on Hey, It's the King. The next year, actor Junius Matthews passed away. Matthews had originated the role of Rabbit in the Winnie the Pooh specials for Disney. With his passing, Sansom won the iconic role of Rabbit for the New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Patricia Elizabeth Paris, Pat or sometimes Trish to her friends, was born October 22, 1950, in Hamilton, Ohio. Her father, Howard, was an Air Force colonel. After graduating high school, Paris attended Brunel University in Georgia, majoring in drama and English. While there, she directed plays like My Fair Lady and The Children's Hour. Taking on school radio work, she found she had a flair for accents and impersonations. After graduating from Brunel, she moved to Hollywood and studied voice work with animation legend Doz Butler. You might know him best as Yogi Bear, but his credits go on forever. Paris would find her way to Hanna-Barbera Studios, where she landed her first voice role, that of Shelley on Jabberjaw. She would go on to voice Cindy May on Yogi Space Race as well as provide additional voices on Dinky Dog. That Hanna-Barbera connection likely landed her the role of Pammy Panda on Shirt Tales. When it came to visiting the Hundred Acre Wood, Paris won the role of Christopher Robin's mom on Winnie the Pooh. After these messages, we'll be right back with the premiere of The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh.
1: Loud and clear. Take off. Roger. Launching exciting new Sonic Rangers. Prepare to dive. Go for it. These headsets are voice activated, so instead of fooling with on and off buttons, your hands are free for other things. Turn me head. I read you. New Sonic Rangers built tough for wherever the action takes you. All right, now. New Sonic Rangers from Fisher Price. Batteries not included. Watch me trick Fred out of his new fruity pebbles with lime green. Good night, Mike. Rocodile Bon D. If you don't give him green, me rocodile gets mean. Grrr, ain't He's jumped. after your fruity pebbles, Mike. No, <laughs> New lemma, wishes is fruity pebbles. What? Dino? You know? Barney, my pebbles! <laughs> See you later, alligator. Fruity pebbles cereal, now with lime green. Bottom this nutritious breakfast. Yeah, but got delicious. Once upon a time there was a kid who said, I've got a great big bunch of crackers in my bed. But all the crackers tumbled, so into bed he tumbled. Gotta match the crackers, the crackers in my bed. He's Be the kid. Gotta match the crackers, the crackers in my bed. You wanna match a cracker? Gotta use your head. If you can, oh, I'll put it back. If you can, you gotta match. Gotta match the crackers, the crackers in my bed. Crackers in my bed. New from Parker Brothers. Before taxes. Yay! Before puberty. Oh my! Oh my! There was childhood. Right you are! And Winnie the Pooh. May we join you? Now, share the Disney classic you loved as a child with your family. The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, premiering Saturday
0: morning on ABC.
1: This is ABC.
0: If you watched the premiere of The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, the date was September 10th, 1988. The number 7 song on the American charts was I'll Always Love You by Taylor Dane. If you were a kid who liked to laugh, maybe you tuned in to the comedic gold the networks were releasing. As with the 1987 season, 8 of the top 10 shows were comedies. ABC offered up Roseanne, Who's the Boss, and Anything But Love. NBC was hot with The Cosby Show, A Different World, Cheers, The Golden Girls, and Empty Nest. CBS shows 60 Minutes and Murder, She Wrote weren't getting any funnier. New snack foods that were a hit with kids included the bar nun candy bar from Hershey and Teddy Grahams. Out on the comic book rack was DC Comics' Green Arrow, Issue 8. The cover found Green Arrow himself racing a pack of sled dogs through an intense-looking storm. There is a disclaimer on the front saying it was suggested for mature audiences only. Now I feel like I have to hunt this down and read it to find out why. The retail price was $1. On ABC, the other shows that premiered that day were The New Adventures of Beanie and Cecil and A Pup Named Scooby-Doo. If you were a kid in 1988, maybe you got up early and got yourself breakfast. Maybe you had a new cereal like a bowl of Cracklin' Oat Bran or Yummy Mummy. For Winnie the Pooh, the day starts as it should in every Disney show, with a singer telling you to get up and then hilariously tripping on a pile of marbles. If this leads into Pooh falling down the stairs and sliding into a nutshot, it would be the trifecta of Three Stoogedom. Because nothing says child-friendly comedy like knocking around the old testes. The song tells us that we like Winnie because he's just Pooh Bear. Though, as we're being told this, that silly old bear is going through a series of costumes, including the Lone Ranger. It looks like being Pooh Bear means committing grand theft honey and trying to outrun a gang of angry bees. At one point, he's being carried away by a red balloon because... You'll float too. The supporting characters get all their moment in the spotlight. Tigger goes about his usual tiggering. Rabbit goes along for the ride. Piglet seems scared of Pooh dressed as a fisherman. It's probably because of that urban legend of the fisherman with the hook hand. I can't wait to see if Disney ever creates an I Know What You Did Last Summer with Piglet. Well, probably not Disney. But those fine folks who brought us Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey might be up for it. The song tells us what a good friend Pooh is to all he meets. If that were true, he would have advised Eeyore to dial 988 a long time ago. No joke here, just 21st century concern for Eeyore's mental health. I know it's tough out there, buddy, but we're here for you. Until Pooh bounds away to Christopher Robin and your name hardly ever comes up. The episode, "Poo Oughta Be in Pictures, starts the way everything starts in Purple Prose Country with a dark and stormy night. And at the site of a huge castle, which Christopher Robin and friends are trying to escape with their lives. Right off the bat, this show tries to tackle the plight of short people everywhere, Stairs. Tigger, Chris, and Pooh manage to get down to the castle's basement, but Piglet is taking his sweet time, like there's not a monster, or Heffalump, or a whatever, after him. Sure, it's easy to outrun the monster when you have lengthy gams on your side. Not only is Piglet a target because of his height, but because he's wholly made of bacon. This is the same problem I imagine Kevin Hart has every day, for the same reasons. The gang decide the safest place to hide is under the table that looks like it houses a Frankenstein's monster. Though if this isn't reanimated, it's just a pile of rotting body parts all sewn together. The worst part is that a mummy is approaching to get them all. And then the scene transforms into a kitchen and the mummy is really a mommy and Christopher Robin is under the breakfast table. Turns out he's hiding from his lunch. Being afraid of carrots, the boy does not want to eat what's on his plate. Though, lunch turns out to be a pile of sliced carrots and a piece of bread that's half-eaten with a glass of milk. I'm not sure what this lunch is, but I do not blame Christopher Robin for trying to avoid it. Despite the nice kitchen, maybe the Robin family has fallen on hard times. That would explain this wackadoo lunch just as surely as if it had been a ketchup sandwich. Though ketchup sandwiches are definitely a symbol of being poorer, ...since you only have to pay for the bread. Ketchup is up for the taking at any school cafeteria or gas station kitchen. I'm not saying that I know this from personal experience... ...but poverty is a bitch. Tigger and Pooh appear from under the table... ...and the tiger encourages the lad to chomp on Bugs Bunny's most famous prop. We get the wind-up of the veggies... ...and then off-camera to avoid the masticating violence... ...Chris sinks the gullet shot... ...and then falls to the floor... Dead. See, vegetables kill. The end. No, wait. The imaginary friends try to revive him, but it takes a reminder from his mom to get him off the floor. After all, he can now go to the theater to see a monster movie. And what a lineup this would have been for Chris. The theater would have been showing Nightmare on Elm Street 4, the Dream Master, so I assume that's what he's going to try to sneak into. Though if he wanted a comedy, there was A Fish Called Wanda and Big. Not to mention the fact that Cocktail, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Die Hard were all at the Cineplex. I don't care what he sees as long as it's not Moon Over Parador, which premiered at number one. Can you believe that this Richard Dreyfus P.O.S. was number one? What a waste of Dreyfus! What a waste of Raul Julia. What a waste of my talents. That's right, I was in that movie. Sort of. I was at the Universal Studios stunt show when they recorded my audience in a crowd scene and it ended up in this movie. At least, I think it did. I wasn't happy with my performance, so I could never bring myself to watch it. Anyways. Christopher Robin goes to the theater to see the movie Birdzilla. And you know what? I'm into it. A giant radioactive sparrow destroying a major metropolitan city. What's not to like? Except that Piglet doesn't seem into it and is scared out of his mind. Pooh tries to remind him it's only a movie, but it doesn't seem to help. If this were meta, Pooh could remind the pig that he's made of ink and paint flopping around at 24 frames per second and can't be scared if he doesn't exist. It's exactly what I tell my kids when they have nightmares. Sure, they question their own existence, but they don't have nightmares. Mainly because they can no longer sleep. While Pooh and Christopher Robin are off raiding the snack bar, Piglet has a panic attack and manages to knock down the lobby display for the monster movie. Birdzilla itself falls on Piglet, precious precious snacks go flying, and the theater's bouncer is mighty pissed off at the youth. He's pissed because the popcorn bucket landed on his head. Really, he should be delighted. If that bouncer can play the guitar, there's a 90% chance this is the real Buckethead. And that's the Winnie the Pooh alt-rock mashup I've always wanted. In the theater, Christopher Robin is agog at the monster movie. Pooh Bear is pretty spellbound, and poor Piglet is trying to go to his happy place. Tigger, meanwhile, is a complete cynic and talking about how fake this whole thing is. Piglet jumps into Pooh's lap, making the bear drop his honey crunch bar. I know it's not a real candy, but it sounds delicious. Caramelized honey, covered in chocolate, bam, honey crunch bar. Pooh crawls under the seats in search of candy, and Piglet brings up the rear. Andy gets his foot stuck in gum, and thinks something is trying to pull him. He gets pulled into the gum, which ricochets under the seat and forms a gummy spider web. Pooh gets pulled in because he's Pooh, and Christopher Robin saves them both. Chris, once again, tries to convince Piglet it's only a movie. But this little piggy is getting the roast beef scared out of him. Which is ironic because, in another life, Piglet was Jack the Ripper, a true wolf in the fold. After taking a swim in Christopher Robin's extra buttery popcorn, Piglet admits he's even scaredier than ever. Tigger gets up to tell Piglet that there is nothing to fear, because movies are just pictures on a screen. They're imaginary, which is ironic because so are Pooh and the gang. I assume Christopher Robin made up these characters from his stuffed animals as a coping mechanism for the death of his dad. While that's never said explicitly, it just feels right. If I ever have to cope with a death, I want to make Optimus Prime my spirit animal. That way, no one will be surprised when I start stealing trucks. This gets Tigger into his cabaret act and he pops into song. <laughs>
1: For a month to pillage a house, a block, an entire village. He ate until he reached his village, but me, I stood right there. I've seen a 90 stories high, seen ones that swim and some that fly. But I never flinched when they stomped by, cause tiggers don't get scared, so, so you'll, you'll be, be alright. Right. Cause it's, it's make believe, it's leave. just a light that shines real bright and bounces off a screen, so, so you'll be, be alright. Right. And, and quite, quite safe too There's no need to be scared when a tiger is there with you But what about the usher? Oh, don't worry, Piglet, he's not in the movie I've seen him rip, I've seen him tear I've seen him trouting through the air But I survive without a care, Because tigers don't get scared It's just a bunch of movie tricks To make you think this thing exists A piece of film is all it is There's really nothing there So you'll be all it's make believe. It's just a light that shines real bright and bounces off the screen. So, so you'll be all right, right and quite, quite safe too. There's no need to be scared when a tiger. Oh, oh, and don't forget Christopher Robin too. There's, There's nothing, nothing to I fear, fear when, your when your friends are here with you. With you.
0: See you in a hundred acre woods! <laughs> It's okay because it's make-believe and just tricks of light. It's meta all the way down. If Tigger becomes sentient, I have a feeling he'll immediately disappear in a puff of smoke at the many realizations he's bound to have. After these messages, we'll be right back.
1: After these messages, we'll be right back. Time for a Happy Meal at McDonald's. I can't wait for a six-piece chicken McNuggets,
0: regular soft drink, and regular fries. I know. A car will get me far. Then I'll ride a horse, of course. This skateboard won't make me late for my Happy Meal (laughs) date.
1: When you buy a McDonald's Happy Meal featuring the Berenstain Bears, you can shop in Bear Village with Mama or fill Papa's wheelbarrow, scoot along brother, or pull Sister Bear's wagon to school. Time for recess! Hooray! The Berenstain Bears. Only at McDonald's.
0: Back from break, Tigger is bouncing around the 100-acre wood and acting like the giant spider from the scary movie. Christopher Robin gets the idea they should make their own movie. This is how it starts. You think you'll make the next Clerks and sell it at Sundance and launch your career. Instead, it degenerates and falls apart, and you find yourself using the equipment to make porn. Sure, you can become an OnlyFans star, and that's better than having a real job, but the downside is... Uh... Well... Uh, never mind, that sounds pretty awesome. Fingers crossed the rest of the episode doesn't go this direction. Chris dresses Pooh in a white scarf because movie heroes are forever wearing white scarves. Tigger plays the part of the villain. Secretly, I'm hoping that Chris will make his own version of Squid Game. If that's the case, it'll be curtains for Pooh. No way he'll be able to punch out an umbrella before he eats that honey-flavored cookie. And Tigger? Well, that'll go like this.
1: The wonderful things about Tiggers is Tiggers are wonderful things. The tops are made of the rubber, the bottoms are made of the spring, the bouncy bouncy fr-
0: That's what you get for being extra bouncy. Unless you work at Hooters and then you get tipped 25% more. Tigger doesn't want to be in the movie, but gets cast as the one who gets chased by the monster. So afraid of being a victim, he's now gonna play the victim. Anxietyville, population piglet. Meanwhile, Tigger plans to be the scariest monster of all. A six-foot-tall carrot. Not even a carrot monster, just a regular old root vegetable. Maybe it's the root of all evil, which is what my carrot-based horror movie will now be called. Elsewhere, Rabbit is out in his patch of land going through his garden. He stops to smell the carrots and almost takes a bite before the shadow of a six-foot-tall carrot falls over him. I imagine this scares the pellets out of him, but I can't imagine why. If I were able to eat a piece of orange chicken, and a six-foot-tall piece of orange chicken rolled up on me, I would be celebrating. I'd eat the hell out of that orange chicken, and Rabbit should be sinking his chompers into this taproot. Why have a little when you can have a lot? Then again, with Tigger in the carrot suit, Rabbit thinks his greatest meal is having a conversation with him. If my orange chicken talked, I might reconsider. Nah, I'd take it down with a side of fried rice and go back for seconds. In a fit of insanity, Rabbit buries the carrot he's holding and swears off the orange treat for life. And then he realizes the carrot sounds like Tigger, and Rabbit believes his friend was eaten by the vegetable. But a cartoon's got a cartoon, so carry on. Tigger tries to show it's just a costume, but the zipper's stuck. He asks Rabbit for help, but the hare is too busy being batshit crazy and runs off. Meanwhile, Christopher Robin films Pooh and Piglet going at it. I mean, he films them getting into character for the movie he's making. It's all ruined by Rabbit interrupting and announcing a monster is in the Hundred Acre Wood. Pooh thinks it's all make-believe, but then a six-foot-tall carrot arrives on the scene, and they all run for their lives. They won't be able to hide. That carrot's gonna find them with his beta-carotene eyes and do as he pleases. Pooh, Piglet, and Rabbit run through the forest, and it's clear they've got wood. Well, hundred-acre wood. The poo kind. If I have my bearings correct, they're running towards the six-pine trees right into Heffalump territory. The gang run into a hollow log to hide. They can hear poor Tigger calling for help, and they think the carrot is digesting him. Despite his fear, Piglet asks if there's anything they can do to help poor Tigger. Pooh can't think of anything, and instead replies, Oh, bother, Sid's dead, and rides off on his motorcycle. No, wait. Pooh is still trying to come up with a plan. After these messages, we'll be right back.
1: After these messages, we'll be right back. Did you see the latest Nintendo newsletter? Whoa, nice graphics! I'd like to get my hands on that game. You mean you haven't played it yet? We can play it on my Nintendo Entertainment System. It's the Legend of Zelda, and it's really rad. Those creatures from Gana are pretty bad. Octoroks, Tektik's Levers too. With your help, our hero falls through. Yeah, go, Link. Yeah, get Zelda. Awesome. Intense. The Nintendo Entertainment System. Your parents help you hook it up. The Legend of Zelda sold separately. Hey, Hiccup, why did a girl keep a loaf of bread in her comic book? I don't know, Frankie. She liked crummy jokes. I like corny ones. (laughs)
0: Back from break, Pooh Bear is explaining how they'll trick the killer carrot into falling into a hole. I get the sense that they'll then cover the hole and bury the carrot alive, which, knowing it's Tigger, seems really messed up. Pooh talks about getting a carrot into a hole and pouring his honey all over it. That sounds exactly like what happened on my wedding night. Though there was no honey involved, and now I think I know how to improve my 100-acre wood fan fiction. The plan goes south when Tigger rolls up, Piglet gets frightened, and Honey goes everywhere. And I mean everywhere. He'll be showering that out of his cracks for weeks. Tigger does topple into the hole, but bounds out without the carrot costume. Not knowing it's just a costume, Rabbit is real quick to insist they bury it before it wakes up. Yes, they think it's a monster, but they also know it's a conscious being. They go straight from being afraid to, let's kill it with fire. And taking the approach they should bury it alive is some real mob mentality. Plus, if horror movies have taught me anything, it's that you should always watch the monster die. When you don't, that's when you get six sequels. Coming next summer, Winnie the Pooh, risen from the grave. Tigger explains that the carrot was his monster costume for Christopher Robin's movie. When they look at the mingled costume in the light of day, they realize there's nothing to be scared of. Of course, in real life, there is plenty to be afraid of. Someone taking your kids, being exposed as a fraud, Spanish Inquisition, or my deepest fear, broccoli. The list is endless. Piglet wanders away covered by an Eeyore level of depression. He explains that he wasn't brave enough to help and he froze up instead of being able to act. That's not really a problem when confronted with a carrot costume. It's a real inconvenience when Pooh's house is consumed in flames, and all Piglet can do is bring the marshmallows. Pooh says they were all scared. And Piglet says, Yeah, but I was the only one with flashbacks to the Iron Triangle on that day we lost Stinky. Whoa, Piglet was in the nom. Now I'm sorry Stanley Kubrick never got the chance to make Full Metal Piglet. QCCR’s fortunate son. That night, Piglet is staring out the window and seeing... That night, Piglet is staring out the window and we see it is, yet again, a dark and stormy night. And the lightning works to light up the carrot costume, which is stuck in a tree. The wind flares up and opens up the door. Piglet hides before he can see it's just that silly old bear with a present to cheer up his piggy friend. Pooh is bringing the hero scarf that Christopher Robin gave him for the movie. So I have to wonder something. A lot of Winnie the Pooh takes place with Christopher Robin because these are his stuffed animals. And he's bringing them to life. But when it's just Pooh and the rest, meaning no Christopher Robin, is the boy still imagining the story? Is he writing this somewhere like a diary? Are we seeing it acted out like he's writing in a Harry Potter journal? Is Pooh aware he's not real? Or does he believe in his realness like the rest of the world? Or am I only in Christopher Robin's imagination? If he dies, do I stop living? Can I break a fourth wall? Do I exist anymore? How rubbery are the walls in this room? Who are those guys with the butterfly nets? (gasps) Butterfly nets? I always thought those were a trope! Ah, okay, back to this unreal reality. Piglet sniffles that he doesn't want his friends because he's worthless. Years from now, the gang will reunite and decide Piglet isn't worthless. At his funeral, they'll decide he's delicious after being roasted in the ground for a solid 12 hours. Don't forget the glaze. It'll make Piglet sweet as can be. Pooh braves the stormy weather and the carrot costume flies at him as if attacking. Pooh is all out of bejesuses because they've been scared out of him. Piglet hears his cries for help and decides he can save his friend. Lock and load. Of course he needs his hero scarf, a musical symbol, and a plunger. I always use a plunger when I either save or battle Pooh. Stumbling in the mud, Piglet rides his symbol like a sled and rams into the monster. Pooh is free, and it's all thanks to the little pig who could. Pooh vows to tell everyone how brave Piglet really is. The next day, Christopher Robin continues making his movie, and Pooh is again calling for help. Piglet gives what for to Birdzilla and drives the monster away. Well, he drives away the hand puppet of Birdzilla that Tigger's wearing. The camera pulls back to reveal the gang is watching the completed film on the wall of Christopher Robin's basement. The film seems to catch fire, and the screen fades to white. I assume this is a tip of the hat to the fact that Piglet caught fire and is now a crispy critter. There's a tag at the end with Chris and Pooh sitting on a hill and pondering the boy's hatred of broccoli. Now that's my kind of ending. A happy one. The end. After these messages, we'll look at the impact, aftermath, and explore the legacy of the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh.
1: I know a boy, his name is Zack He loves to fit, he loves to stack Yes, construction is his knack He's the Lego maniac He builds in the window, he's off the wall He builds them big, he builds them small In Legoland, he'll rock and roll He's Lego wild, out of control Zack, Zack He's a Lego maniac Zack, Zack Legoland, King's Castle, Airport, Cosmic Fleet Voyager Sold separately from Lego Systems I'm Lewis, the lifeguard, and happy to say I rescued a drowning potato today. They drowned it in sour cream. Oh, what a shame, cause food's so much better when it's practically plain. No. So don't drown your food no. in mayo, salt, ketchup, or goo. Yuck! It's no fun to eat what you can't even see. So don't drown your food. Sunday on Disney. Come on, everybody! That classic tale comes alive. Uh, don't be ridiculous. Winnie the Pooh and
0: Tigger too. <laughs> That's what do best. Was it a phenomenon? Oh bother! Four decades before this show came along, Disney had been marketing Winnie the Pooh merchandise. While it would be difficult to separate out merchandise specifically for this show, the series did help to spark interest in the A.A. Milne Bear. There was a line of figurines available at Sears. At this time, in the 1980s, Disney had an exclusive deal with Sears to market their characters, and Pooh was put on the merch train. If you flip through the Sears Wishbook, you'd see a ton of Pooh-themed items including PJs, plush animals, sleeping bags, Pooh Express train, a chorus piano, baby gear, toy box, and even a big wheel. Not to mention a calculator, wristwatch, poo in the box TV, and phone. The Milne books with the shepherd illustrations were also published in this era. Disney and Golden Books put out a line of adventures based on this show – Honey Nut Cheerios had a tie-in to get a free plush poo at Sears when you spent $10 and bought the cereal. So, was it a phenomenon? It had Disney behind it, it almost had to be. But the real success of the series wasn't at the time, it was what it sparked in the years to come. We'll explore that after we see what happened to the cast. During Winnie the Pooh, Jim Cummings was involved with a ton of roles including the character of Beagle Satch on Rude Dog and the Dweebs. In addition to voicing Winnie the Pooh, he was the voice of Darkwing Duck and Pete on Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. He's done a ton of stuff. I guarantee you that, with almost 500 credits to his name, you've heard him at one point or another. In 2001, Cummings married Stephanie and the couple had two daughters. A decade later, they divorced and their custody fight for their daughters was fraught with allegations. Stephanie Cummings claimed emotional and physical abuses. Cummings himself said the charges weren't true and claimed his ex-wife was trying to extort money from him. In court, Cummings won his case, but both parents were reprimanded for feuding instead of putting their children's needs ahead of their problems. As of 2022, Cummings has maintained his ties with Disney and is currently expected to voice a role in the series, Goblins Animated. Paul Winchell always wanted to be a doctor, but never made it due to the Great Depression. While his life gravitated towards entertainment, he still received training in the medical field. He's also a patent holder for his invention of an artificial heart. His patent was jointly held with Dr. Henry Heimlich, yes, of Heimlich Maneuver fame. In the mid-80s, among his acting chores, he developed a way to breed tilapia fish in Africa to combat starvation in that region. His daughter April is also a voice actor and currently voices Claribel Cow for Disney. In 2004, near the end of his life, Winchell wrote his life story down in the autobiography, Winch. His story was filled with childhood abuse, depression, and a stint in a mental institution. It's sad to know that under all those hours of happiness Winchell brought to his audience, whether on the radio, the big screen, or on Saturday morning, that he himself was deeply troubled. The artist retired in 1999 and passed away on June 24, 2005 at the age of 82. The cause of death was determined to be natural causes. After Winnie the Pooh, John Fielder, like many of his castmates, came back to their characters from the series. You could say he was typecast as Piglet, but I would think Fielder enjoyed it. It was a role that came naturally to him and he embodied the character from small screen to big screen and even for video games. While Fielder's last role was for Disney, it wasn't as Piglet. He voiced Rudy in the 2005 video, Kronk's New Groove. Somewhere along the way, Fielder took up residence at the Lillian Booth Actors Home in Inglewood, New Jersey. It was a retirement home for entertainers that was sponsored by the Actors Fund of America. Fighting cancer, Fielder lost his battle on June 25, 2005 and passed away at the age of 80. The Piglet actor passed away just a day after Paul Winchell, the voice of Tigger. After 1991, Ken Sansom's main career was playing Rabbit in all of Disney's Winnie the Pooh-related specials, games, and big-screen adventures. Back in 1961, Sansom married Carla, and the couple raised three children. On October 8, 2012, the actor passed away from stroke complications at the age of 85. Pat Paris voiced Helen Little on The Littles and played Lily the Cat on Dumbo Circus. She voiced Princess Leia on the Movies to Record Kid adaptation of Star Wars. While her voice career seems to end in 2005 with Disney's Tarzan 2, she's been active behind the scenes. She's done a ton of commercials, and remained active in the voice community. In 1989, she married William Shibley, and the couple are still together. The legacy of The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh was a revitalization of the character. With the care the creators took to preserve but modernize the character, Disney found new life in the Hundred Acre Wood. And with new life came new merchandising opportunities. This Saturday morning series ran a total of 50 episodes over four seasons and ended its run October 26, 1991. When it ended, it was recognized as a weekend cartoon success. Not only did Disney plan more projects revolving around Pooh Bear, but they released some episodes of the show on home video and blitzed the market with other collectibles. Within a four-year span, the Pooh brand went from bringing in $100 million a year to a billion dollars a year. Since 1997, there have been nine direct-to-DVD movies, five theatrical movies, and a Pooh cameo in Chippendale Rescue Rangers. There have been three TV series since 2001, and there were four TV specials that aired throughout the 90s. In 2002, TV Guide voted Pooh as the 27th greatest animated character of all time. Four years later, the bear was given his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Around 2001, Disney finally broke down and bought out the other three copyright holders. These were the institutions A.A. Milne had willed the rights of the books to. The Mouse House paid $350 million to assume full ownership of that silly old bear. Before the full buyout, Christopher Robin Milne sold his remaining share to help his daughter after his passing. The real-life Christopher Robin passed away at the age of 75. He left behind his worth to his daughter Claire, who was born with cerebral palsy. Claire herself passed away at the age of 56 in 2012. With the Disney company in full possession of the character, it's no wonder so many movies, TV shows, and specials were produced. Pooh Bear is Disney's second-largest franchise and has surpassed Mickey Mouse in sales. In 2012, The Little Bear That Could became the third-largest media franchise in the United States. As of 2022, the 1926 A.A. Milne novel Winnie the Pooh entered public domain. And then it was announced that IT and studios were filming Winnie the Pooh, Blood & Honey. The tagline for the movie read, this ain't no bedtime story, and this horror treatment of Pooh was not aimed at children. I can't imagine Blood and Honey is going to set the world on fire or interfere with Disney's property. A.A. Milne's posterity is likely safe with Disney, who still have a reverence for the characters. It's also not likely there will ever be a Winnie the Pooh vs. Freddy Krueger movie, but I'd be for it if there was. Disney hasn't announced any plans in the near future, but who knows what the creatives are planning. A Pooh movie could drop at any time, and I'd wager kids everywhere would flock to it, adults could enjoy it, and remember what it was like to be a kid. As far as Saturday morning cartoons, between the gummy bears and this bear we've just covered, Disney did try one other concept, but we'll save that for Thanksgiving. Was the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh a favorite of yours? Do you have a different opinion? Did we stir any memories about the 80s you'd like to share? Listen until the end for our contact information and let us know. Until next time, TTFN, and thanks for tuning in. Thank you for joining us at the saturday morning podcast if you like what you hear please subscribe if you could do us a favor leave us a five-star review wherever you get your episodes and telling a friend or two wouldn't hurt either if you'd like to drop us a line please write to satmornpod at hotmail.com you can follow us on twitter at satmornpod do you have any vintage saturday morning memories Email us your story, and we could read it on the next episode. Uh, It's always going to be that bigger stuff, the creators and the perfect cast. That's what's going to take so long to actually get done this time. (laughs) Which is ironic, because usually that's not the case. Okay, now I'm just talking to myself. I need to concentrate on the podcast where I am talking to myself, talking to other people. So, it sounds less crazy that way. Or something. Almost two weeks after his 74th birthday, A.A. A. Milne passed away in his home in Hartshire, Sussex. Hartshire. <laughs> Hartfield, I just made up a place. <laughs> That's right, Hartshire. I'm sticking to that. That's the hill I'm dying on. Don't look at a map. It'll disprove me, and I'll have to die.
1: <laughs> okay, bye-bye.